Lights out. Everybody. supernatural and the supernormal, dramatizing the fantasies and the mysteries of the unknown. We tell you this frankly, so if you wish to avoid the excitement and tension of these imaginative plays, we urge you calmly but sincerely to turn off your radio now. so excited kelly aren't you it's my favorite time of year oh it's you know it's gonna be kind of a bummer this is our hgb halloween special 2020 so we all know that we're dealing with covid19 at the same time which has canceled a lot of things but we haven't let it cancel our halloween at all definitely not we fully decorated the house inside and out we are handing out candy to any little kids brave enough to come to our driveway absolutely We're going to be hosting the Zoom virtual Halloween party. We are. Later on this evening, for those of you listening to this earlier in the day. Indeed. And we've even done some Halloween stuff. Like we went out to Gatorland here in Florida. They had it all decorated for Halloween and they were handing out candy to the kids. It was so much fun. We've done the SeaWorld Spooktacular where they were handing out candy to the kids too and had all kinds of decorations. And then the big thing we did is your sons came out here and joined us for a few days. And we went to, I guess what you'd call a horror theme park called Screamageddon. It was so much fun. It was. We shared some (laughs) pictures up on Instagram and Beth had pointed out, she's like, how in the world did Kelly get you to go through one of those things? Because this place had five, (laughs) well, I wouldn't say five haunted houses because one of them was out in the woods. And they did a really good job. There was only one part where I kind of jumped a little bit and it was when the floor fell out from underneath me. (laughs) You didn't like the chainsaws either. No, and it was really cool. They had a guy who was like strapped up on a thing that was like swinging him around above our heads with the chainsaw. Yeah, almost like a bungee, but it was a little bit smoother, I think. Yeah, and it was like he could control it. So he would like jump from one place to the next. It was kind of like watching Spider-Man, I think, swinging around only if he had a chainsaw. That's a very good comparison. I would agree with that. Some really cool special effects that they had going on and... It was kind of weird to have to go through a haunted house wearing surgical masks and such. True. And all of them were wearing them. But (laughs) it was neat to see how people incorporated masks into their costumes and such. A good majority of the people had them decorated as if they were scary mouths. 
Yes. And uh, the clowns in particular took a real liking to you, Kelly. <laughs> I said, clowns. Why did it have to be clowns? It was fun. It was a lot of fun. And I believe, was it, I think it was last year or was it the year before that we talked, I think it was the year before we talked about the history of haunted attractions. Yes, I believe it was two years ago. There we were with that one. Now, and you had fun, and now you're wanting to go to Universal's Hollywood Horror Night. That's what I was just about <laughs> to say. I'm like, okay, I got a little bit of the bug that maybe I will give it a try because I, I love looking at all the technical stuff, like the effects that they do, sure. the makeup and everything. So I was really enjoying that as I was going through the houses because the jump scares don't do anything for me. I'm the same way with horror movies. I just don't. I'm like, just stop with the jump scares. There's only <laughs> a couple of times that jump scares have been like, okay, that was pretty good. Like the haunting of Hill House. There was one right. in that that got me real good. Yeah. With the jump scares, it doesn't literally scare me, but it's a fun scare. Like mm-hmm. it, I like getting surprised like that. It cracks me up. So I'm, I'm screaming, but laughing at the same time. <laughs> and you go full bore with it. I mean, you just take it all in and just <laughs> savor it and enjoy it. So it's it is fun. kind of fun. Although occasionally we do get beat up and pulled on and thrown around. By me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hanging on your shoulders. Well, Kelly, on this Halloween special, as we do every Halloween special, we'll be sharing some personal experiences of our listeners, real hauntings that they've had. Most of these are not in historical locations, so we save a lot of these for this. But, you know, we share them all year long, but we save a few and, and share them during this. And then we also have a special thing that we're going to be doing for this one, because I'm always looking for, what can we do a history of that's a little bit different? We're going to be talking about horror hosts. Awesome. This just takes me back to when I was a kid and growing up and stuff. I'm kind of bummed, Kelly. I never had like a local horror host. I had Elvira, which was great. And she is my favorite. I believe she's your favorite, too. She is, yes. But we didn't have one that you could like go meet somewhere or whatever. You know what? Elvira was your local one because right. you lived in California. Exactly. And you could go see her. So, But for me in Colorado, we didn't have like a local horror host. Throughout the years, we've shared the history behind certain elements of the Halloween traditions we practice. And we've also looked at the history behind haunted attractions. And last year, we looked at the history of paranormal television. We thought it would be fun to focus our history on the Halloween special on people who helped raise us weird kids. You know, us kids who consider Halloween the number one holiday. And those are horror hosts. We asked our listeners about the ones they grew up with and the ones that were their favorites. We're going to share some of them on this special, along with sharing some true paranormal experiences of our listeners. Some of the horror hosts we've included aren't technically what would be defined as horror hosts by purists. Diane is a purist, but she's not a tyrant, and so she is including some here that listeners suggested that she would not consider to be horror hosts. Horror hosts technically are presenters of low-budget B-movies of the horror and science fiction genre. Most of these films are nicknamed Creature Features. Most of these hosts are very campy and take on unique stage names, as you will soon hear. The idea of having horror hosts started in the 1950s, and it was initiated by Screen Gems, who marketed a package of old Universal movies they called Shock and suggested that a host be used to present the films. Another package was offered in the 1960s called Creature Features. Horror hosts have been such a successful idea that they've continued all the way up until our current time. Most are seen on public access channels, and many became well-known in the 1980s when UHF channels came into existence. Did you remember getting the special antenna so you could get the UHF channels? 
I don't actually. My dad used to handle all that stuff, so I don't really remember anything specific. Yeah, because the TV had just the general rabbit ears, as we call right. them. But the UHF channel was like the circular thing that you attach to the back of the television. Yeah, I don't think we had that, but I don't know. And that's when you got the extended channel. So it wasn't just Ooh. the three big ones. And they always had the really cool stuff on the UHF channel. Not only did you have your horror host, but then there was like Buck Rogers in the 21st century <laughs> yes. and that kind of stuff. Last year, Diane tried to catch all of Joe Bob Briggs specials on Shudder during the Halloween season. There are well over 100 notable horror hosts. Obviously, we don't have time to focus on all of them, so we will hit on the ones our listeners suggested. We'll do them in order of how many people suggested them. Everybody had their own influences by whoever was on in their city. My first horror host was Roland. My horror host was Zachary because I grew up in New York area. We're both big Zachary fans. It was Channel 9, I think, WOR in New York that we watched him on. I have to say Gilardi was the greatest because that's who I grew up with. The thing that worked best about Ernie is he didn't care. <laughs> it was the first time you saw a host anywhere go, Man, this show's a turkey tonight, gang. When I would do things with him, I felt like I couldn't go wrong. When I was watching Sir Cecil Creep, I was at an age that a lot of the programming that was aimed at me would have a host. Yes, that's what we need. We need a horror host on Channel 29. It sort of took the edge of the scary off the movies, which was nice when I was so young. Of course, there was Vampyra. I resent women with big bosoms. <laughs> I had to fake mine. <laughs> Vampire was, was more seductive, more kind of quiet, very mysterious. Oh, yeah, wow. At some point, she was more interesting than the killer shrews. And then, of course, 20 years of Chili Billy Cardilly, Bill Cardell. I've had that name now, uh, Chili Billy, since 1963. Your creature features, oh, I love the cigar. I love the rocking chair. Uh, no, 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 that wasn't me, that was another guy. I just sort of uh, walked into to, uh, everything I did. The thing that was amazing about that show was the invitation in it that was kind of like you could make a show. Well, I can do that. I can probably do it better. It was the most exquisite experience of my life to do that show. It showed uh, how we started this whole business of uh, introducing uh, late night scary movies on television. Aren't you glad? <laughs> So what you just heard there was an audio bit from a trailer for American Scary. This is a documentary about horror hosts that was done by Johnny Hudgens and Sandy Clark. So I encourage you guys to check that out. It's very interesting. First up, before we get into the ones that people suggested, we have Vampira or Mela Nurmi. That was her real name. And Kelly, we can't start this list without having Vampira because she was the first. What I need is a vampire cocktail to settle my nerves. It'll not only settle them, it will petrify. Most of the listeners and us are not old enough to have watched Vampira, but she's the one who started the horror host thing and she inspired them all. We've talked about Vampyra before on episode 229, Haunted Cemeteries number 5, in which we featured the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And Kelly, we actually got to see her grave when we visited the cemetery in 2018. We certainly did. 
And it really wasn't all that fancy of a stone or anything. It was pretty small, but it did say her name on there and Vampyra. It was relatively basic, but yeah, it was nice. Vampyra was born when Nermi attended choreographer Lester Horton's annual Bal Carib Masquerade in a costume inspired by Marticia Adams in 1953. She made her skin pale white and wore a tight black dress. Television producer Hunt Stromberg Jr. saw her and knew she'd be perfect to host horror movies on the Los Angeles television station KABC-TV. Nermi's husband, Dean Reisner, came up with the name Vampyra. Nermi's characterization of Vampyra was inspired by the dragon lady from the comic strip Terry and the Pirates and the evil queen from Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. She hosted the Vampyra show from 1954 to 1955. She also appeared in Ed Wood's cult film Plan 9 from Outer Space, among other films. She died of natural causes in 2008. When I saw the dates, I was like, wow, it's amazing how short a period of time she actually was a host. Right. Next up, we have Larry Vincent. Good evening, and welcome to Seymour's special Halloween edition of Fright Night. Now, here he is, that master of the macabre, the epitome of evil, the most sinister band to crawl on the face of the earth. Seymour! Trick or treat! Uh, trick or treat, Wayne? Wayne, I'll just drop some of these cookies. Oh, they're hot. Uh, make that this cookie in your sack. So hard about picking a lock. It's just a question of a little practice. Now allow me to demonstrate. A pair of handcuffs loaned to me by the LAPD and a hairpin loaned to me by a young lady the other evening when I was over at her apartment. She was quite attractive, about 5'8", long... Well, that's another story, of course. Now, I'll handcuff myself to, uh, to the telephone over here. You're making a big mistake. Huh? I will attempt to handcuff myself to the telephone. Certainly. I will put the telephone in the handcuff. Then you'd be surprised. Well, give me the police department. I don't know how these goddamn handcuffs work. We wanted to mention Larry Vincent because his early work would help bring Elvira to us all. Vincent was a horror host who went by the name Seymour, and he hosted Fright Night and Seymour's Monster Rally from 1969 to 1974 out of Los Angeles. He would pop up in a little window in the corner of the screen to comment occasionally on a movie, and even sometimes used a blue screen so he appeared to be actually interacting within the movie. Vincent served as Knott's Berry Farm's inaugural ghost host in 1973 at Knott's Scary Farm Halloween Haunt. He was diagnosed with stomach cancer in 1974 and died shortly thereafter on March 9, 1975. Six years after Vincent died, Elvira took over hosting Fright Night, and this would eventually become Elvira's movie macabre. The horror host in the 1985 horror film Fright Night was named Peter Vincent in tribute to him. So I thought that was pretty cool because he hosted Fright Night. And so that was kind of a way to say, you know, this movie was named after the series that you hosted. Next up, we have Dr. Gangrene. His real name is Larry Underwood. 
I heard about this guy from listening to the Monster Kids radio podcast. And if you guys aren't listening to that, I encourage you to do it. It's actually been on longer than history goes bump. It sure has. And I would say if you're not listening, what is wrong with you? And for people who don't know, (laughs) Monster Kids were the kids who grew up in the 50s and 60s and 70s who liked horror movies and such. He's from out of the Nashville area. Dr. Gangrene knows his stuff and he won the 2014 Rondo Award for Best Horror Blog. He's a regular columnist for Scary Monsters magazine and has written his own short stories. Dr. Gangrene was born on July 1st, 1999, with the persona of a mad scientist when Larry began hosting a half-hour program called Chiller Cinema. The show got so popular it expanded to cable access channels around the country. An updated version of the show called Dr. Gangrene's Creature Feature launched in 2005 and ran until 2010. Larry still has a show that airs twice a week on Nashville's Arts Channel, Channel 9, and is called Dr. Gangrene Presents. An epidemic of mass murder being committed by a virtual army of unidentified assassins. It seems to be a sudden general explosion of mass homicide. Thousands of office and factory workers. Hey, viewers, you've uh, joined us at a rather bad time here. It seems the dead have come to life here on Shackle Island and for some reason are converging on the lab here. Back! No, Monique, I don't understand it. I've always gotten along with the zombies so well. Well, maybe it was because you used them as cheap labor for the pumpkin harvest festival. Or maybe it was because you used them in your radioactive experiments. Yeah. Or maybe it was because you rented them out for the Nielsen household to improve our ratings. Or it could be when you yeah, use yeah, yeah. Well, the... Whatever their mysterious motives, the important thing is that we get to tonight's movie. Oh, and ironically, tonight we're showing the greatest zombie movie ever made, the 1968 classic Night of the Living Dead, made by director George Romero. This movie has done more to inspire low-budget filmmakers than any film in history. So without further ado, we'll let the brain munching begin from 1968. This is Night the living dead. <laughs> Next up, we have The Ghoul, suggested by Roberta, and his real name was Ron Swede. Ron Swede's inspiration was Goulardi. Jerry Vile, who was a Detroit artist, media maker, and creator of The Dirty Shown, said of Swede, he was the Hunter S. Thompson of trash. You didn't have to be an adult to know he wasn't playing by the rules. He was everybody's introduction to anarchy. He influenced a lot of people. He was like the proto-punk. It was true revolution for the hell of it. Blowing up stuff with fireworks? We weren't supposed to do that. But here he was, doing it on the TV. Swede was born in Ohio and grew up in Cleveland. He got his start in horror hosting when he was 13. He wore a gorilla suit to a live performance of Goulardi, and the man brought him up on the stage, and then made him his production assistant. Swede did that for several years until Goulardi headed to L.A., but Swede continued to help the show that took over the spot. In 1970, he got Goulardi's permission to revive his old character, but make it his own. In the late 70s, he got syndication to area big cities. He had a good run off and on for 30 years and was revived again in 1998 and ran for six more years. Sweet had a heart attack in November 2018 and died five months later from complications. Is that not dandy? Look at those eyes, sparkle and glitter in that light. Too much Bafo dynamite. Now, over to this four. Four. Give four a shake. Come up. Nice and easy. Aw, oh, too much. Kids been practicing, haven't you, Lex? Oh, give it a little bang day. 
all throughout the show. I mean, what's our fourth annual Halloween show without a jack-o'-lantern over day? We're going to be carving it, I promise. We got another one, and nothing's going to happen to this. I want to tell you, I've already scooped it out. I've gutted the thing, and we're going to carve it all throughout the show. So carve along with the ghoul. Ain't that good? I know a lot of you can't because they don't give you sharp implements, but do the best you can, gang, wherever you may be out there in TV land. And Night of Night Joy Shows kicking off our fourth annual Halloween show. We're going to premiere tonight for your viewing edification in just a few minutes. Gruatorial feedback. That's right. I'm going to shut my mouth. I'm going to walk out that door. And you, the viewers out there, will have this whole podium to yourself and sit on the ghoul stool and spout off, do what you want, okay? That's coming up in just a matter of minutes. Next up, we have Bob Wilkins. This was suggested to us by Gary, and he went by that name. Bob Wilkins started in television in 1963 in California. He became a horror host in 1966, moving the show from Sacramento to San Francisco. He never took on the type of crazy persona that many of his peers did. Rather, he developed some trademarks, like always having a cigar, sitting in a rocking chair, and commenting about the bad horror films he hosted with a dry sense of humor. He would gain huge success when Creature Features debuted in 1971. And when we say success, the show rated better than Saturday Night Live at the same time. Wow. Wilkins eventually went on to host a children's show as Captain Cosmic in 1977. He retired from television in the 1980s and went into advertising. He died in 2007 from Alzheimer's disease. Can you feature that awful creature? Can you feature that ugly creature? Creature features and feature features about creatures. Creature features. Now, the strangest thing about this show on two is its host, Bob Wilkins, and he brings it to you. <laughs> features and creature features and all creatures and all features. you tonight. You better not turn out your bedroom lights. He'll grab your head and give it such a bite. You may even die <laughs> from just a fright. Ain't nothing gonna be, baby, I'll say be all right. Cause the creature gonna get you, baby. Get you. Welcome to Channel 2's version of Saturday Night Fever. And tonight, um, there, there will be a creature, get someone, because we've got a movie about devil worshippers. They're nasty people. When they want somebody, they really go after them. This is a, a low-budget film, like, you know, that's sort of rep <laughs> repetitive with tonight's, uh, the title of the show, Creature Features, but this was a, a low-budget film, I'm sure a first effort, and it uh, has a lot of Texas written all over it, shot down the border there. And what I want you to do tonight is sort of stick with this film like it was yours. It was your first effort, okay? And you can tune it off, tune out of it, whenever you think that you could have done a better job, all right? But please wait till the opening credits, all right? Enter the Devil, first time on television, and um, 
it, it's not bad. It has a surprise ending. It's got a couple of good things going for it. And, of course, this show, we have to support first and second efforts by filmmakers because who knows what will happen to them later in the future. But a lot of people start off on low-budget films and really have risen to great heights. So there you could hear with Wilkins that he definitely has a much different persona. It's not this campy kind of thing. He almost sounds like a professor talking about the shows. Sure, a very different take on it. Christine McConnell was suggested by Frankie. McConnell's not technically a horror host, but she does host a creepy show and considers herself a goth baker. She hosts the curious creations of Christine McConnell on Netflix, and she is accompanied by a cast of monster house guests created by Henson Alternative. She whips up some ghastly recipes as she comments with a witty banter. McConnell became famous through Instagram and a creation that most of you probably saw floating around on the internet. She decorated her parents' Los Angeles area home for Halloween with huge fangs and spooky eyes. Some of her baked creations include an edible insect bacchanal and a pastry face hugger from Alien. Kelly, have you ever heard of this woman? I don't think I've heard her name. I think I've seen a photo of the house, though. I definitely remember seeing the house, but I never heard of the show. So you know what we're going to have to watch on Netflix? Definitely. On the top of a dark and distant mountain, there is a beautiful and talented woman who uses her unique skills to create hauntingly disturbing confections. She finds beauty in the art of darkness with each creation and shares them with us. The unusual creatures she has taken into her home. I can't remember the last time we had a normal meal around here. You think this meal is normal? That is spectacular. Uh, sugar. Once this cools down, we'll be ready to carve a face. I use royal icing in a piping bag. Oh, I get it. What part can I help with? You're a pretty little princess. Don't wait up. This is our home, and it's a place where the strange and unusual are safe and welcome. Welcome to the curious creations of Christine McConnell. I do think we should kill him. Next, we have the Cool Ghoul. This was suggested by Tim, and the Cool Ghoul's real name was Dick Von Hain. Von Hain got his start working on a radio show out of Cincinnati named Bob Smith's Monster Mash. In 1969, he developed the cool ghoul character and started working on a costume for him that included a white shirt with a vest-like shirt over that, red cape, plaid wool hat, smoky eyes, pale complexion, and his trademark orange-tinted wig. He at first had planned something scary, but went with this image of cool ghoul so it would be less scary for children. He started his television show in the early 1970s, which was called Scream In, a riff off of Rowan and Martin's Laugh In. He could do a wonderful impersonation of Boris Karloff. The show ran for three and a half years, but the cool ghoul continued to make appearances publicly and and eventually moved to North Carolina in the early 1980s and made fans on the East Coast. He died of a heart attack in 2004 and was buried in Spring Grove Cemetery. Hello to everybody in Indianapolis, Indiana. This is the cool ghoul from WXIX Television, Channel 19 in Cincinnati, Ohio, a service of Metro Media Television Incorporated. And... <laughs> Hello, cool ghoul, and hi, everyone. This Howdy the witch! Uh, <laughs> Hello to Sammy Terry. Can you imagine that cool? His 10th anniversary up there in Indianapolis. That's a long time. 
I'm on ear happy. It certainly is. And around Halloween time, too. That's my birthday also, Sammy. <laughs> hey, Sam, congratulations. No kidding. I know most of the little ones are asleep by now. So we can look you square into the eye. The big eye, you know. The big eye, right? We'll look you square in the big eye, and you're Houston fearless. And from WXIX Television, Larry Smith, Hattie the Witch, yours truly the cool ghoul, everybody down here in Cincinnati, we want to congratulate you on 10 groovy years in the biz. In Indianapolis, you got a lot of fans up there. And happy Halloween to you all from Batty Hattie from Cincinnati. Bye-bye, Congratulations! And as you guys just heard on that little bit that we played there, he mentioned Sammy Terry, who we'll be talking about in a little bit. Sir Graves Gasly, whose real name is Lawson J. Deming, and he was suggested by Shelley. Lawson Deming was born in 1913 and began his career in radio in 1932. Sir Graves was the horror host for the show Sir Graves' Big Show, and this featured Deming hosting horror movies with a group of characters who would do brief skits interspersed through the movies. Sir Graves Gasly was a vampire with an exaggerated laugh. His sidekicks were Baruba, a ghostly apparition known only as The Glob, and a cemetery caretaker named Real McCoy. The show ran in Detroit from 1967 to 1982, which was a really long run. The show ended up syndicating in both Washington, D.C. and Cleveland. He continued to make appearances until his death in 2007. the point. Oh, good afternoon, dear heart. Welcome once again to that ghastly production, Sir Grave Preserve. I am your friendly neighborhood vampire, Sir Grave Gasly. Each Saturday this time on your TV, too, I bring you tales of the supernatural, ghost stories, monster tales, Stories to chill your blood. Tales to run fingers of fear up and down your spine. So, my dears, turn out your lights. Pull down the shade. Draw the drapes. Cuddle up in your favorite spot by the telly. And glue your little eyes to your TV screen for today's tale of terror. Next up, we have Icky Twerp or Gorgon. This was really William Camfield. It was suggested by Linda. Bill Camfield was born the son of a coal miner in Mineral Wells, Texas. He relocated to Fort Worth and began working for television station KFJZ in 1954. In 1957, the station bought the shock horror film package, and Camfield portrayed the host of the show, Gorgon. This character wore a black cape and had a sinister laugh. That show became a hit and even got national attention in magazines like TV Guide, Life, Saturday Evening Post, and Famous Monsters of Filmland. The show went on hiatus in 1959 but returned in 1962 and stayed on air until 1964, returned again in 1972 for a while, and again in 1976. Halloween specials ran nearly every year with Gorgon. Camfield was also Icky Twerp, which was shortened from Ickamore Twerp Whistle, and he hosted a kid's show called Slam Bang Theater. This was a comedy show, and his character had horn rim glasses, a striped suit, tousled hair, and an undersized cowboy hat. 
he died in 1991 of brain cancer. When the night falls, when the shadows become deep and black, the silent pall of evil settles on the earth. Who dares to search? Who dares to see what walks in the night? If you dare, welcome to Nightmare. Do you have a favorite spot, my friends? One place upon the earth where you are surrounded, surrounded by the mementos, the souvenirs, the things that remind you of the high points in your life. Such a place is dear to one, is it not? This room is such a place to me. For this is my trophy room. This is the place I like to be the most. But you have never been here before, have you? And have never completely toured my collection. How thoughtless of me. Come, my friends, and allow me to show you around. Next, we have Dr. Creep, whose name was actually Barry Lee Hobart and was suggested by Teresa. Hobart was born in 1941. His interest in the macabre began with his uncle, who hosted a traveling monster show and was a horror film makeup artist. Hobart started in television as a camera specialist in Ohio. He eventually suggested to them that they should feature a late-night horror movie show, and Hobart auditioned to be the host. His initial offering was a really creepy character with fangs and a horrifying skull face, and he called himself Dr. Death. He was hired, but asked to tone it down, which he did by removing the fangs, toning down the makeup, and calling himself Dr. Creep. They called the show Shock Theater, and it launched in 1972. The show ran for 13 years. He would make future appearances as well, particularly for charity events. He died in 2011 after a series of strokes and ill health. They like entertainment, but they like a little bit of meat, a little bit of class, something with educational material. Mmm. The FCC wants us to clean up our act. And, and so well, I present for your enjoyment Hetty Shrinkus, eminent scientist and doctor of social psychology, to discuss the implications from a sociological and psychological standpoint of tonight's motion picture, The Haunted Palace. Yes, Dr. Creeper, thank you for inviting me to such a classy show. The people who watch this show must be crazy. It should be easy to impress them. Next, we have Fritz the Night Owl. This was suggested by Karen. His real name was Frederick Peeringboom. I hope that's how you say his last name. Fritz, as everyone called him, started in radio in 1959. He started his work as horror host in 1974, hosting Night Owl Theater in Columbus, Ohio. He enjoyed jazz, so his angle became to have humorous commentary over jazz music during movies. The show had a long run, ending in 1991. He revived hosting duties in 2010 at the Grandview Theater. On the last Saturday of the month, the movie was shown with his pre-recorded bumper segments. This was broadcast on the internet, too, and moved locations until it ended up at Gateway Film Center. He has won six Emmys for his work. Dang. And Good I believe, for him. And I believe he's still doing that hosting there at the Gateway Film Center. Awesome. Greetings, good groovers, Earth people, 14 viewers out there in the darkness, your voice of the night, Fritz the Night Owl, this just in. Batman has to go to the Batcave, Superman needs a phone booth, all I gotta do is take the glasses out. Goulardi, whose name was Ernie Anderson, was suggested by Michelle. Ernie was a disc jockey and actor who was born in 1923 in Boston. 
He served with the Navy during World War II and worked as a disc jockey in Cleveland. He moved to TV and joined WJW-TV 8 in 1961. He agreed to host Shock Theater for them in 1963 and was a huge hit. His character of Goulardi was really different from other horror hosts. His character was an irreverent hipster with a costume that included a fake Van Dyke beard and mustache, a long lab coat covered with slogan buttons, horn-rimmed sunglasses with a missing lens, and messy wigs. Ernie had friends join him on the show in various roles, and as we shared earlier, Ron Swede joined him as an intern. Goulardi used catchphrases like, Stay sick, Niff, which is fink backwards. Cool it, turn blue, would you believe, and over day, a regional pronunciation of over there. He used instrumental rock and roll music under his commentary. Much of that commentary was telling people that they should just go to bed rather than watch the terrible movies he showed. Goulardi was retired in 1966, and Anderson died in 1997. What happened to Ernie Anderson? Down with Bill Gordon. No, up with Bill Gordon. Bill Gordon played beautiful baseball out there. He was lousy. That's what I like. Pick, pick it up so we can get a shot of it. <laughs> hey, Goulardi's too cool to... <laughs> He gets the poor cameraman open up the box. See, they got a little shocker in their babies. You're pretty tricky, right? You didn't catch Kulardi out there, you that. Count Eflak. His real name is Greg Calfee. This was suggested by Jonathan. Count Eflak hosts Movies from the Tomb on the Hill Country Network, which broadcasts out of northern Mississippi. And this is one of our few modern-day hosts, as this show just began in 2018. Oh, nice. <laughs> Welcome to another edition of Count Eflak's Movies from the Tomb. Tonight we have Frankenstein's Daughter. The last of the Frankenstein movies in the 50s. It was made in 1958. It is listed uh, among the 100 best uh, bad movies. Because let's, let's face it, this one is not so good. As a matter of fact, I have brought out my own critic here. Deadly Earnest was suggested by Leanne and Anne. This was a character portrayed by many people. Deadly Ernest was a horror host from down in Australia. The character show launched in 1959 in Perth and continued through 1978. The show was called Deadly Ernest's Awful Movies and started with the VW7 Perth musical director Max Bostock as the character. Ian Bannerman took over in 1966. The program featured irreverent commentary and even presented the worst movie of the year. The unique thing about this program is that they didn't do the syndication thing in Australia because local versions had to be broadcast without satellite. So Deadly Ernest needed to be portrayed by multiple people, which included Bannerman in Sydney. Channel Zero floor manager Ralph Baker in Melbourne, future TV drama star Shane Porteous in Brisbane, and Hedley Cullen in Adelaide. Not much is known about Batterman, with people thinking he died in the 1980s. So he's the most well-known of all the Deadly Earnest, but I thought that was really unusual, because here we just syndicate across the country, but back at that time right. they didn't have that ability. So it was like, well, if we want to have Deadly Earnest hosting all these movies in these different places, we're going to have to have somebody actually doing it. So he would have had different looks, I guess, based on where I would he was imagine. at. You clanged, Barry. Inside. It's a very nice place you have here, Deadly. Yes, and I bet you thought I lived in a dump, eh? Uh -huh. <laughs> very nice. Yes, I've just had it done up. 
But there's one thing that's really burning me up. Oh. Is that incinerator in the corner? It's a flaming nuisance. <laughs> Do you care to take a creep around? Next, we have Joe Bob Briggs. His real name is John Bloom. This was suggested by Jerry of Hillbilly Horror Stories and Aurora. Joe Bob Briggs calls himself America's foremost drive-in movie critic. This horror host is played by John Bloom, who is an actor, author, and investigative journalist. He's written nine books, but his role as horror host has made him famous. He played Joe Bob Briggs on the Movie Channel for 11 years and on TNT's Monster Vision for five years from 1996 to 2000. He's gone on to host The Last Drive-In on the Shutter Network since 2018. Joe Bob is a cowboy redneck-like character who wisecracks on B-movies and was discovered in 1986 during a stage show. Speaking of baffling modern trends, Halloween 3 is coming up now for obvious reasons. You know, we're less than a week away from the big hoo-ha spook night. But to tell you the truth, I've got problems with this flick. When you think Halloween, what do you think? Splatter City, right? All-time classic of the drive-in screen. We're talking the original Jamie Lee Curtis, Creepola with a butcher knife, hypodermic in the eyeball, barf on the floor mats, showstopper. We're talking a movie where anybody can die at any moment. So I have the following questions. Numero uno, where the hell is Donald Pleasance? How can we have believable corpses in a Halloween flick unless Donald shows up 30 seconds after they die and says, you don't know what you're dealing with here, only I can stop him. Numero two-o, where the hell is Jamie Lee Curtis? And I know if we can't have Jamie Lee Curtis because she's off making indoor bull stuff somewhere, then where is the other little nympho who provides the raw meat for the slasher? We've got a tradition here to uphold. Numero three-o, where is the slasher? Where is Michael Myers, the guy with white stuff smeared on his face who walks around breathing like a hemicuda and picking up spear guns that people leave laying out in their yard? If this guy's not in the movie, I'm sorry, people, it's not a sequel to Halloween. That's all right. I'm going to vent later. I don't even want to get started right now. I'm arguing about the free-range chicken thing, but we'll talk at the breaks. What we've got here is nine dead bodies, 15 zombies, two breasts, which Ted, of course, made us edit out for TNT, so you won't see those, a little zombie kickboxing, exploding car, fingers through the eyeballs, drunk who gets his head ripped off, a layered famine, hands roll, arms roll, and yes, heads roll, two stars, and I'm being generous with the two stars. So check it out, and I'll see you at the first break. Up next, we have The Midnight Society, suggested by Lush and Chelsea. We weren't really sure about this one. We believe it's referring to The Midnight Society that hosted the original anthology series, Are You Afraid of the Dark? That was out of Canada and aired on Nickelodeon in the U.S. from 1990 to 1996, and again in 1999 to 2000. The members of the Midnight Society would gather around a campfire in the woods at the beginning of each episode, and one of them would tell the story for that episode after throwing some midnight dust into the fire. Sam Terry, this was suggested by Susie, Scott, and James, and this was played by both Bob and Mark Carter, the father and son. Sammy Terry was a horror host based out of Indianapolis, Indiana. The man who created him was Bob Carter, who got a start as a disc jockey. He eventually ended up in television working on WTTV in production. When Universal shopped their shock collection, WTTV bought it and asked Bob to host their shock theater. At first, the hosting just incorporated still photos with voiceover narration during commercial breaks. Eventually, the character of Sammy Terry was developed as a cloaked ghoul with a pale face who rose from his coffin to comment about movies, and the show was changed to Nightmare Theater. This started in 1962, and for those wondering how they got the name Sammy Terry, just think cemetery. 
Ah, <laughs> kind of cool. Terry had a sidekick, a floating rubber spider named George. Bob retired and his son Mark took over duties for Sammy Terry in 2010. Bob died in 2013. Sammy Terry still makes appearances on Indianapolis television for specials in October. <laughs> Good evening. Welcome to two maddening hours of horror and fright. I am Sammy Terry. <laughs> Every night is forbidding in black. The long, dark shadows set apart from the rest of the icky night by silvery pools of light from the cold, frosty-looking moon. An uncertain evening such as this, your mind can stray from the path of reality and lead you into a maze of suspicion and fear. For behind every bush and tree, hiding in the haven huge shadows, a fiendish maniac is waiting just for you. Next up, we have Sven Gulli. His real name is Jerry G. Bishop, and he was suggested by Kristen, Teresa, and Michael. And then their son of Sven Gulli, whose real name was Rich Coase. This was suggested by Carrie and Lisa. Sven Gulli is one of the most popular horror hosts out there, and he has endured for a long time. He has been played by two men, Jerry G. Bishop and Rich Coase. The show started its run in Chicago and is now syndicated nationally on MeTV. The first show was called Screaming Yellow Theater. The horror movies presented are not only low-budget B-movies, but also classic horror movies. The character was originated by Bishop in 1970, and he played it until 1973. Coase took over the character in 1979, and he's been doing it since, but under the name Son of Svenguli. Svenguli is a Svengali-like person, and he wears a mustache and goatee with long black hair. He has skull-like makeup and wears a tuxedo jacket over a bright red shirt. Like other horror hosts, he would present skits during commercial breaks, and he would also perform parody songs about the films being aired. He also did something that inspired Mystery Science Theater 3000, and this was Sven Surround which was Svenguli talking throughout a film and making funny sound effects. Svenguli presented Bela Lugosi's Dracula in 2007, which was the first time the movie had been on public television in over a decade. There have been a variety of sidekicks through the years. Doug Graves played music on piano and trumpet. Zalman T. Tombstone was a disembodied skull. Berwin was a rubber chicken puppet. Zelda was a disembodied skull. Durwood the dummy was a wooden ventriloquist dummy. In 1994, Coase became Svenguli, moving from the son of Svenguli. In 2011, the show went nationwide. Yeah, so now there's no son of Svenguli. It's all just Svenguli. But I think he didn't feel right taking that name when he took over until finally he got the blessing. And so it was like, yes, you just go ahead and take the name. Sure. Good evening. I'm Jerry G. Bishop. And this is the famed split-level dungeon studio where many years ago... The legendary Svengula, Sven Gulli, burst into television prominence. What if there were the same situation as in the past with the son of Frankenstein, the son of Dracula, Sanford and Son? Could there exist somewhere, somehow, the son 
Sven Gulli. Hey, Dad, can I borrow the keys to the horse tonight? Yeah! Ah, thank you. Ah, good evening. I am the son of Sven Gulli. Right, okay, roll the movie. I'll be back in just a little while. Let's get to the movie now, all right, guys? Thank you. All right, roll the movie. Let's get on with it. Next, we have Robert Stack. He was suggested by Drea, Rebecca, Chelsea, and Jenny. Kelly, as we said, I'm a purist, so this one I also don't think fits for horror host. Not really even close, but <laughs> since we had okay. four people put that name up, I'm like, okay. Because if you look at the way that we, you know, what a horror host does. Sure. That's not what Robert Stack was doing. He was a serious man, and he gave us all chills as he hosted Unsolved Mysteries. Stack had a long career as an actor and television host. He got started in acting in 1939 when he was 20. He began hosting Unsolved Mysteries in 1987. The series aired from 1987 to 2002, but initially started as specials, a couple of which were hosted by Raymond Burr and Carl Malden. And I believe we talked about this on our last Halloween special. Stack was the host for the entire original run. The series revived in 2007, hosted by Dennis Farina, and now again on Netflix starting in July 2020, and the second season just dropped. We just started watching it, Kelly. Stack died in 2003 from prostate cancer and heart failure. Tonight, the season premiere of Unsolved Mysteries. Join me for a dramatic season premiere. Perhaps you may be able to help solve a mystery. Dr. Paul Bearer, played by Dick Bennett, was suggested by Kathy, Chris, Clyde, Carol, and Lynn. Dr. Paul Bearer was a truly creepy horror host, and he holds the record for longest ever continuous run as a TV horror movie host with 22 years. He hosted WTOG's Creature Feature out of St. Petersburg, Florida. Ernest Richard Dick Bennick played the character. Dick was born in Asheville, North Carolina in 1928. He got his start as a magician and moved into being a North Carolina boss jock and teenage dance party host. He created Dr. Paul Bearer while he was working on a television station in North Carolina after he was asked to replace Count Shockula, the station's first horror host. Dr. Paul Bearer had a truly creepy look because he had a false eye from a car accident and Graves' disease, which caused his real eye to bulge. The complete look incorporated an enormous facial scar, disproportionate eyeballs, goatee, thick eyebrows, and an undertaker's costume. He once said of his effort to create the character, finding the look took some thought. I went through all these magazines and I picked out what I liked about various characters to design my new character. The beard came from a Vincent Price movie and quite frankly, I can't remember which one. Parting my hair down the middle, I stole from a guy in New York, TV radio horror host, John Zacherly. The spats and the frock coat, I just thought looked cool. I had to go to a beauty shop and get them to give me hair off the floor that matched my own to make the beard because in those days they wouldn't let me grow one. I could never explain the scar. I just kind of liked it, and that seemed to make it click. He hosted Creature Feature on Saturday afternoons and shared his gallows humor, groan-inducing puns, and diabolical laugh. He enjoyed telling the audience he would be lurking for you. Bennick brought his character with him to Polk County in Florida in 1973, and he convinced the WTOG station manager to let him host there. He made frequent public appearances, arriving in his decked-out 1961 hearse. Dick died during heart bypass surgery on February 20th, 1995, at the age of 66. <laughs> Good afternoon, and welcome. 
Castle of Dr. Paul Bearer. <laughs> so nice to sit down in the uneasy chair in my unliving room. <laughs> Run a little late today, so I uh, stopped by one of those quickie food joints and picked up, uh, thought I'd try some chicken McMaggots today. <laughs> well, let me see how these things taste anyway. <clears throat> mm, very tasty. <laughs> so while I enjoy my chicken McMaggots, maybe you can enjoy our Horrible old movie for today, and believe me, it's really horrible, or my name isn't Dr. Paul Barrow. <laughs> <laughs> Most of you will know this next one, who was suggested by Vicky, Valentina, Rebecca, Jenny, Liz, Angelica, Amy, Nache, Jenny, Chantel, Mandy, Janae, and Carrie. This one is The Crypt Keeper. The Crypt Keeper is best known as the creepy puppet host of the Tales from the Crypt series. He also is not technically a horror host as the stories he weaves are original and not B-movies. Tales from the Crypt started as one of the most influential and successful horror comics of all time and was adapted to television for HBO in 1989. He was introduced to the public in Crime Patrol number 15, and he continued with that magazine through its changes in title and format. He was a frightening presence in those early issues, but became more of a comedic host later and definitely was when the comic book made it to the small screen and he would offer lots of pun-filled commentary and irreverence before a story during breaks, and after the episode was done. When not telling stories, he likes to torture and kill humans. As it was revealed on the episode Lower Birth, the Crypt Keeper was the product of Enoch, a two-headed sideshow freak that was a corpse, and Marana, a 4,000-year-old mummy. In reality, he was a puppet handled by Van Snowden, and he was voiced by actor John Kassir. His look is that of a decaying man with broken teeth and long stringy hair, and he usually wears a cloak. Many people recognize his creepy laugh anywhere, and one of his standard lines was, Boils and ghouls. Plans to revive the series have been stalled by licensing issues. From the crypt. When I think of you, my heart goes flopsy as I contemplate your sweet autopsy. Your skin is green and blue, whatever would I do without my fine cadaver? The love in which I know I'll fall starts with the uncandest cut of all. And finally, we have Elvira, who I'm sure everybody already knows. Her real name is Cassandra Peterson. She was suggested by Carrie Ann, Jenny, Chantel, Mark, Trisha. Nache, Michael, Ginger, Tracy, Pat, Jessica, you, Kelly, and me. Indeed. So both this host and the Crypt Keeper had 13 people suggest them. Doom, doom, doom. Tiebreaker. <laughs> Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, really needs no introduction. As I said, most of you already know that she was created by Cassandra Peterson. Peterson was born in Kansas in 1951, and like all of us, she was fascinated by the macabre from a very early age. She got her start in entertainment as a go-go dancer at a gay bar. Her first showgirl job would come in Las Vegas at the Dunes, and she would meet Elvis there and date him for a bit. 
She moved to Italy in the 1970s and fronted a couple of bands. She returned to the U.S. and toured with a musical comedy group and then an improv group called The Groundlings. She played a Valley Girl character from that group, and this would eventually become Elvira. As mentioned earlier, she replaced horror host Larry Vincent six years after his death. Initially, Mayla Nurmi had been asked to revive The Vampira Show, but she gave up on the project when producers would not hire the woman she handpicked to host. A casting call was sent out and Peterson won the part. She was given freedom to create the character. And she did a fantastic job. Yes, she did. While Elvira was similar to Vampira with her dress and black hair, it was clear that Peterson had created a fairly original character in Elvira. She comes off as campy rather than spooky or creepy. That didn't stop Nermi from suing to try to stop Elvira from seeing the light of day. She lost in court. While we like Vampira, we adore Elvira. And let's be honest, both characters are inspired by Morticia Adams. Elvira soon came to be known by her tight clothing and dangerously low-cut dresses that revealed ample cleavage. She would play up this detail quite a bit. Peterson soon had more than a character and horror host. She had a brand that continues today. Elvira's Movie Macabre launched in 1981 and continued through 1986. She starred in the movie Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, in 1988. Her appearances in films and video and television have continued, and she has also found herself in comic books. For 20 years, she hosted a Halloween stage show for Not Scary Farm. She is as popular today as she was in the 1980s, and she really brought horror hosts into the popular mainstream. For us, she is our favorite. Hello, darling. It's me, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, that video cutie who makes the boys stand up and salute Well, it's time to reach into the old vault for today's video treasure. <laughs> Boy, talk about scraping the bottom of the barrel. Woo, smells like a really ripe one. Let's see, it's Killers from Space. Oh, yeah, right. Well, I'll just stick this where the sun don't shine. No, not there. In the VCR. There we go. I bet you're thinking Killers from Space is one of those movies about teeny little men from outer space who fly around looking for a soft place to land. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> little men from outer space. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. What the... What are you, what are you guys doing? We're circling ground zero at radius of five miles. Well, I know I'm big, but I'm not that big. What's that thing shining below? Hey, what are you, a couple of peeping Tom Thumbs? Take her in closer. Hey, buddy, wait, wait, he's up on your joystick. We're in trouble. Pull out. Pull out! I can't, I can't! All right, you two interplanetary perverts. Just for that, you're going to have to sit here with me and watch Killers from Space. And there is actually a Horror Host Hall of Fame. If you guys want to check that out, it's at www.horror-host.com. And I think it just started in 2011. But pretty much all your favorites have gotten in there at some point. And there's a ton of them in there I've never even heard of before. Very cool. All right. So you ready to have some scary stories, Kelly? I am. Okay, this first one we have up is from Stephanie. I've had an experience, but not at an old building. My sister died suddenly at 22. I was 23. We were so close, so it really did a number on me. I was also there when she died. I don't regret that one bit. Soon after she died, I had a dream we were talking on the phone. Her voice was clear as day. When I woke up, I was crying and someone was holding my hand. 
No one else was home, so I do believe she visited me to let me know she's okay. To this day, my mom and I go to a beach in Bellingham that four generations have all spent quality time at. We go on the day she died. One way to remember and celebrate her. Well, the last two years, a butterfly has landed right on the beach right in front of us. It's amazing. She gave us little visits like that once in a while. I've heard of other people having butterflies show up to uh, represent people as well. So that's definitely a common thing. Then we heard from Jimmy. So growing up, I've always been able to feel spirits around me. I lived in my grandparents' house for a few years, and while I was there, my grandfather kept visiting me even though he'd been dead for 10 years. I would always smell him and smell the snuff from when they had it, from when we had bee stings. I don't keep that stuff around. I also went to his grave one night to talk to him and come out of the closet to him. And on the bench across the way was a white angel figure watching me. The house I have now actually has a ghost where I've been scratched before. And when I watch ghost adventures, anytime they talk about the dark shadow man, the lights flicker. I've also had guys come over and I have a phone jack in my kitchen, no phone hooked up to it, and it will start ringing for some reason when the ghost doesn't like the person. Well, at least it's letting you know, maybe you should get rid of this person. The biggest one that's happened so far is where I went to Loretta Lynn's ranch in Hurricane Mills, and I saw an orb on the front porch at midnight go across. It wasn't somebody holding a flashlight. As it went across, at the same time, something grabbed my friend. She took off and left me in the car to where I was just there at the gate looking at the house, trying to figure out when she was going to come back. And Jimmy shared the picture of the scratches that he got, and they were pretty significant scratches. We heard from Carly. She said, For some reason, all my paranormal experiences have occurred at the Door House, and that's D-O-R-R. My first paranormal experience occurred about 10 or 11 years ago. I was probably around 15 at the time when my Girl Scout troop and I went to an open house event hosted by the Historic Trust. As I listened to the tour guide tell us about the history of the house, she started talking about the peculiar story about how Mrs. Door designed the stairs. The story goes that apparently it was very improper for a lady to show her ankles. To ensure that Mrs. Door would never show her ankles, she had the staircase specially designed so that no matter what, her ankles would not be visible while walking up or down the stairs. After the tour guide told us this story, my troop started talking about how horrified she'd be if she saw us today because we were all wearing shorts. As the tour guide continued with the tour, she moved to the sitting room, and while I was listening, I felt someone take the collar of my shirt and tug on it fast. Since we were all huddled together, I thought someone in my troop might be trying to get my attention or that I was in someone's way. However, when I turned around, no one had been trying to get my attention at all. Everyone was intently listening to the tour guide. It wasn't until about five years later that I started researching Pensacola hauntings, and I learned one of the claims is that Mrs. Dorr had been known to grab the back of people's shirts. My theory is that she's horrified by the length of people's shorts or dresses, and she's trying to tug your shirt down to cover yourself. So if you ever visit the Dorr house, I would wear long pants out of respect for Mrs. Dorr. My second experience occurred about a year or two later at another open house with just me and my Girl Scout leader. We once again toured the Dorr house, and we were all in Mrs. Dorr's bedroom, and while listening to the tour guide, I smelled a rose lavender scent. At the time, I just thought it was someone who had on perfume in my group. It wasn't my leader or me because we'd been sweating on and off all day. It wasn't until I bought the book Haunted Pensacola that I learned that another popular claim is to smell a floral perfume in Mrs. Dorr's bedroom. My most recent paranormal experience occurred in the fall of 2019 when I was interning at the Historic Trust Archives. Being a typical broke college student, parking in downtown Pensacola can be expensive, 
So to avoid paying, I tried to park down Church Street, which is free, but it arrived too late. Thankfully, I managed to grab a free parking space in Seville Square. As I walked to the archives, I stopped at the front porch of the Door House because the Historic Trust offered a unique tour about Victorian mourning practices, and I wanted to check what time it started. When I came upon the porch, I got a very uncomfortable feeling that someone was watching me. I didn't feel like it was evil. I just felt that whatever was there was guarding the house. So I left to go to the archives, but I continued to have the feeling that I was being intently watched as I walked past the house. I know you're reading that last experience and you don't believe me because you don't consider vibes to be a paranormal experience, but it really did happen. So am I just crazy? Did someone else tug my shirt? Did I smell somebody else's perfume? Is the door house haunted? That is for you to decide. Next, we heard from Patrick. So I graduated in 2003 from the Sound School in New Haven, Connecticut. The Sound School is a specialized high school. The focus of the school is on maritime studies, marine sciences, maritime history, fishing industries, and all that those entail. I mainly focused on studying maritime history. My senior year, I took a maritime literature class. During the class, we read excerpts from Moby Dick. During this portion of the class, we were assigned a project to do on how whales and whaling affected culture and society. Because of this, we got to go to Mystic Seaport for three days to get hands-on experience on what the life of an 1800s whaler was like. Mystic Seaport is a museum showcasing how the seas have impacted American culture and history. If you get a chance, I recommend making a visit. It's a wonderful museum. When we arrived, we were shown where we were going to be staying. We'd be staying on a sailing ship called the Joseph Conrad. Our museum guide showed us below decks to the sleeping area. The bunks were situated military style. Three-tiered bunk beds lined the bulkheads of the ship's hold with a room in the center that had the bathroom and showers. The class was then split by boys and girls. There were 20 boys and only six girls, which were bunking down in a separate part of the ship. Luckily in the class, I had a few friends, so we decided to stay in the same side of the room, while the other boys in the class took up the other side of the room. So there was only three of us on one side of the ship. When it was time for bed on the first night, I took the bottom bunk, my friend Alex took the top bunk, and our bags were on the middle bunk. On the next tier over, my friend Dan took the top bunk, more of our stuff was on the middle bunk, and no one was on the bottom bunk. We went to bed around 10 after the three of us had a walk around the museum grounds. We chatted for a bit until we started to drift off to sleep. I sleep on my stomach a majority of the time, and this night was no different. As I laid there, I slowly was pulled into a peaceful sleep. But right as I was to fall into deep sleep, I felt someone push down on the mattress. I was startled awake. At first, I figured something fell from the bunk above. Then I felt it again. So I asked, what do you want? Thinking it was one of my friends or one of the other boys in my class. No answer. Then I felt it again, this time with more force. I asked again, what do you want? And it pushed again. Now I'm getting mad, felt another push, but this time with more force. This time I threatened that if they didn't stop, I was going to smack the crap out of them. Then I felt another more violent push. I rolled over, sat up, grabbed my pillow, and was about to swing. I stopped mid-swing. No one was there. But I kept feeling someone pushing down on the mattress. I had an I'm out moment, grabbed my blankets and pillow and moved to the top bunk three tiers over. So now Alex, Dan and I are now each on a top bunk of a tier. So now Alex, Dan and I are now on a top bunk of a tier. My movement awoke Alex who asked me what I was doing. I told him I'd tell him in the morning. I put my stuff on the bunk and climbed into the bunk to try and go to sleep. Now I left my other stuff down on the other bunk. The trip was a day after my birthday, September 30th, and as I boarded the bus, my friend handed me a Shaggy doll from Scooby-Doo. It's my favorite cartoon. Also, I was Shaggy for Halloween a few times. 
Well, this particular doll, when you squeezed its hand, it says seven different things. I think you can guess what's going to happen. As soon as I lay down, the doll starts talking. I roll over thinking I'm hearing things. The doll goes off again. Now I see Alex sit up and look at me. He knows I didn't take the doll. We both had that, did you hear what I hear, expression on our faces. The doll kept going off, but now it was getting faster. But here's the real creepy thing. The doll is programmed to say seven different sayings each time you press his hand. But now the doll just kept saying one phrase, man, am I starved, over and over. Now Dan is awake. He is on the top bunk on the tier in between Alex and I. Dan leans over to where I originally was sleeping and to where the doll is. He proceeds to yell that if I didn't stop playing with that doll, he's going to insert it into a specific bodily opening. I responded with a friendly, hi, Dan. He then spins over and sees me waving at him from the top bunk. He then yells at me to stop playing with the doll, which is still talking. I raise both my hands to show him I don't have it and pointed to where the doll is. He does a double take to make sure what he's seeing is real. Once he realized something is going on, he asked, what the hell is going on? Alex and I respond that we have no clue. At this time, we decided to get some fresh air and headed up on deck, thinking whatever's playing with the doll, let it have its fun. By now, it has to be around three, maybe four in the morning. So as we sit on deck, we're just talking about whatever came to our mind, anything but what had transpired down below. As we were talking, we heard a noise we were all familiar with. One, being from a school who specializes in all aspects of dealing with the water, and two, the three of us were in the school's rowing team. We only had two sports teams rowing and sailing. We heard the distinct sound of metal ore locks going up and into place. Now, Mystic Seaport is on Mystic River. Mystic isn't exactly what you call a booming metropolis. It's as quiet as a tomb. Only sounds you can hear are distant cars on the highway a few miles away in the creaking of the ship. We looked around to see what could have made the noise. We couldn't find the source until we heard it again. Then we walked to the ship's rail, and tied up behind the ship was a whaleboat or a really big rowboat. Now we know where the noise is coming from. At first, we came to the conclusion that it was a wave that caused the boat to rock and made the oar locks bang against the rail or something. But this is the Mystic River at 4 a.m. No one is out, not even the local watermen. There was no one on the water. As we were staring at the rowboat, we heard another set of locks going into place. This time we saw the boat rock seven times as if someone was getting in it. We didn't count, but we knew it was seven because there's only room for seven people in the boat, six to row and one to steer. Also, I could go into the workings and use of the whale boat, but that would be a much, much longer email. After we saw the boat rock, we just slunk back and just sat on the deck. We were trying to come up with a reason for what could have caused the events that occurred that night. It couldn't have been more than 15 minutes when we heard another familiar sound, Orlocks coming out of place and banging against the side of a boat. We stood right up and saw the boat rock again while hearing the oarlocks. We all just looked at each other, nodded, and agreed to go back to bed, which we did. That was the first night. On the second night, we got to sleep on deck. It was in the high 60s still. This time, our friend Ashley had joined us. We told her about our experiences the previous night. She was not sure if she believed us or not, but she gave us the benefit of the doubt. We found a good spot on the port side of the ship, away from our other classmates. Not because we didn't like them, but because they were just being obnoxious, pretending to be pirates, stupid teenage stuff. So the four of us sat down and started chatting and joking around. When a few of the other boys started talking to Alex and then things got heated up, Dan and I stepped in before it got physical. The other boys walked away and Alex said he was going to the bow of the ship to cool off. We agreed that that was probably for the best. Alex was up there for about 20 minutes or so when he came walking back to where we were sitting. He stood there with a surprised and confused expression on his face. We asked, what's up? He said he wasn't going back up there. 
Why not? We asked. It got cold up there. If you don't believe me, go up there, he said. So we did. Not that we didn't believe him, but we wanted to experience it for ourselves. We were all fascinated by the paranormal, and when an opportunity like this occurred, you took it. So we went to the spot where Alex had been, which was about 40 feet from where we were sitting. As we got to the spot, we experienced what Alex did. The temperature had dropped about 10 degrees. We started to try and debunk what it could be, breeze off the water, draft coming up from below decks through the open hatches, but we couldn't figure it out. We then walked back to where Alex was standing, still in a bit of shock. Once we got back to Alex, our backs were turned to the bow of the boat. We saw Alex's eyes widen, and in a calm voice, he said, Who's that? Look. The three of us whirled around to see a young man dressed in a white sailor uniform squatting down in front of a door that leads into a storage locker. The man looked like he was in his mid-twenties. He was average build, not clear on how tall because he was squatting. He had brown hair coming out from under a sailor cap. His head was lowered, looking at his hands, which were resting on his knees. This particular cabin is located under the foredeck, a raised-up portion of the deck located at the bow. There's a four feet or so clearance between the decks. There are also three other doors, two on each side. We didn't hear a door open. There's no access to the decks below up there. We were standing by the forward-most aces to the below decks. Ashley said maybe he was working in that room, but this was about nine at night. Alex and Dan agreed it was someone from the museum, but I had to be the bearer of bad news. That the man's uniform is not from the period of the museum. The museum is set up like a coastal village between the colonial up till the mid-1800s, the period before steam-powered ships. Also, workers at the museum had a distinct uniform. They all wear the same shirt and blue polo t-shirt with the museum logo on it and jeans. This young man was wearing an all-white sailor uniform common to the late 1800s and early 1900s. As we were trying to figure out where this man came from, he raised his head up as if he had the feeling of being watched, which he was. He turned his head in our direction. The moment his gaze met ours, I felt a wave of sadness hit me. I felt like I was at the funeral of a parent or a close friend or relative. I was grief-stricken. I looked at Dan and Alex. Both of them had the same look, that of grief, and each had a tear forming, as did I. Looking over at Ashley, she was being affected the worst. She was crying, clasping her hands over her mouth. It got to a point where she couldn't take it anymore and grabbed onto me and put her head on my shoulder. The other weird thing is there were other kids about 15 feet away from us. I could see them out of the corner of my eye. They were laughing and carrying on. I couldn't hear them, nor did they notice us. It was as if we were in a bubble, just us and our sailor friend. It felt like time had stopped and it was only the five of us. We kept staring at the sailor. He lowered his head and looked at his hands, which he then opened up his hand and we saw he was holding a little box. Alex, Dan, and I kept watching the sailor. Ashley started to become hysterical and began crying, Make him go away. Alex, Dan, and I looked at each other and nodded. We decided to confront this guy. Since I was immobilized by Ashley's grip, Dan and Alex stiffened up and started to walk slowly toward this man. We were ready for a fight. As Dan and Alex advanced, the sailor looked at the box and then back at us and again at the box. When he looked at us again, he had a calming smile on his face. This whole time he had been expressionless. Now he was smiling and had a relaxed look on his face, kind of as if to say, it's going to be all right. He gave us a wide smile and a friendly nod and faded away. As soon as he vanished, just as sadness had taken us all over, I felt relieved. The way you feel when you hear the news that a loved one who got in a car crash has come out unscathed. Dan and Alex turned and walked back to Ashley and I. The four of us just stood there for a moment to process what just happened. Then one of us said something I can't recall what it was, but it broke the tension and we went back to joking around as we were before. We lay down on deck in our sleeping bags and just talked until we fell asleep until about 4 a.m. when it began to rain and we rushed below decks to avoid the rain. 
During breakfast, we decided to find out what happened last night and why. We asked people around the museum if they heard anything about hauntings or ghost sightings. Like most museums, their stance on the paranormal was, I know nothing. We didn't get far with the living, so we decided to go to the museum library and see what the past had to say. We found out that the Joseph Conrad was part of the Dutch Navy and was a training ship in the late 1800s, not positive on the date exactly. While sailing through a fog bank, it collided with a steamship, almost cutting the Conrad completely in half, causing the death of 25 cadets. The ship sank in shallow waters. Eventually, she was raised, fixed, and sold to private owners, then eventually to the museum in the 40s. Now, here's the interesting part. During our research, we came across a photo of the damage caused by the collision, where the impact was. This is where Dan, Alex, and I were sleeping. I still have questions like, is the man we saw one of the cadets who lost his life? What was it in the box that he was holding? I came to the conclusion it could have been an engagement ring. Also, was whoever woke me up trying to warn me of the impending collision? And why was it playing with the doll? I guess at this time, those questions might be left unanswered. Hope you enjoyed the experience. Next up, we have an experience shared by Mark. Isn't it funny the way your mind drifts back to remember things you aren't sure, whether they're dreams or reality, or even something you may have seen somewhere? You remember them as something and you're not really sure, bad dream or your imagination. I remember the first time I felt this feeling, the feeling I have now, the feeling deep in the pit of my stomach, dread. I was around six years old, sometime in the late 70s, in a suburb of Brisbane called Paddington. We lived in an old Queenslander-style house, called so because they were specific to the state. This beautiful old house stood proudly on its stilts on the side of Victoria Street overlooking the neighborhood, just as it had stood for about a hundred years or so when it was first built from weatherboard, with its gaps in the floors to let both the cool night air and mass swarms of mosquitoes through to help you sleep at night. Around the house was a veranda that ran the length of all four sides with bull-nosed rock corrugated iron roof, as was the style to maximize airflow and minimize sunlight in those hot, humid Queensland days. With the bathroom and laundry outside on the rear veranda overlooking the stairs that led down to the backyard. This used to scare me as a young child as my imagination would go crazy going to the toilet in the middle of the night or just lying in bed as there seemed to be a thick fog living across the backyard. I remember I'd run to the toilet and see this fog out of the corner of my eye moving as if breathing, expanding and contracting like waves lapping on the beach of my back steps. I could hear the sounds of the cicadas calling each other and the sound of the cane toads bouncing around under the fog and the sound of the occasional flapping of wings from the fruit bats flying overhead looking for a banana tree or mango tree to feed. One afternoon, my stepfather came bounding in, proud as punch over the work that he had done on two sets of drawers, tall boys, that he had lovingly restored and painted for my older brother and I. Giving us the choice of either a blue and white or red and white one, I chose the blue. My stepfather moved the drawers into our rooms and asked where we wanted them. I wanted mine across the room facing me, so when I woke up, it would be the first thing I saw. I loved it, and soon it was covered with drawings and stickers, as most kids would do. This is when it started. One night, I'd gone to the toilet as normal before bed, making the trek across the back veranda, above the fog, at full speed. Then returning to my bedroom, I dived into bed and straight under the covers. After dozing off, I heard a noise, gradually opening my eyes to see what looked like a solid black figure sitting on the edge of the drawers. Quickly, I gasped and slammed my eyes closed, hoping it wasn't real. I crept my eyes open to see the shape had turned to me to be facing me, with what looked like its legs hanging over the edge of the tall boy. I pulled my head under the blanket and hid, eventually falling back to sleep. The next morning, I woke and told my mother about it. She brushed it off as my imagination or just a dream. For the next couple of months, nothing. No noises, no shape, and no fear. I began to think it was a dream, too. 
A few months later, we moved to another suburb on the southern side of Brisbane called Acacia Ridge, as my stepfather had bought a new house and we were looking forward to starting our new lives. My chest of drawers was placed proudly at the end wall of my room next to the door. This room had a good light source coming into the room from a street light outside on the street behind our block. This gave me a well-lit room at night, kind of like a free nightlight. After a few months, I was laying in bed and I heard a noise. I opened my eyes to see this figure again, only this time I could see it clearly. It turned to face me fully and I could see it start to step down from my tall boy and start to move, almost glide toward me, now shaking in my bed. I slammed my eyes closed and pulled the blanket over my head again. Again, I told my mother and she brushed it off as a bad dream, not knowing that my family had a special gift of communication with these things. The next night again, I heard a soft noise and awoke. This time it was directly over me, looking at me. Only no face, just a dark mass where a face should be. Standing over me, I was too afraid to close my eyes. I was frozen still. It was looking at me and I was looking back into the black. Eventually I drifted back to sleep. I don't know how long we looked at each other, but was enough to burn into my eyes and my memory for life. I gave up telling my mother as it was obvious she had no interest. So I sucked it up and kept it to myself. That night again, that now familiar sound woke me up. This time it was directly over me, not leaning, but as if it was hovering. I asked, what do you want? Why are you here? No answer. Again, after a while of trying to stay awake and be brave, I went to sleep. Then nothing. I waited for it to come, but it had gone. A few months later, I felt my bed move, enough to wake me up. I looked down at the pressure that was on the end of the bed, pressing down on my legs, thinking it was my dog looking at me, only to see it sitting there, again looking at me. This time I felt brave, and I told it to leave me alone. Again, I took it to my mother, who eventually relented, told me of a gift that we have, an ability to see and talk to these things. That night I waited for it. The next night the same thing, again and again nothing, it was gone. A few months later, after my interest was piqued, when I noticed a very famous ghost picture of a monk standing next to a rail in a church called the Ghost Monk of Newby Church. To me, they looked identical. So I named this visitor the monk and decided that he wasn't so bad. The saddest thing is that I think that the chest of drawers had belonged to him and he was somehow attached to it. I wish I knew, but will never know as I destroyed the drawers many years later in a bonfire. I wonder what happened to him and where he is now. I do know that when I think of him, my hair stands on end and I get that feeling again. Maybe he's visiting. Maybe not. Maybe it was real. Maybe not. Maybe a dream. Maybe not. That is for you to decide. Thanks for sharing that, Mark. Very creepy. Scott Booker shared this on his website, Sharing Our Dreams, about an experience at Waverly Hills. Around 10.30, we then headed out to Waverly Hills Sanatorium. Steve and I were lucky enough to have a four-hour tour planned for the night. Both of us are skeptics, but with some belief due to a previous experience at Waverly. But what I experienced that night was enough to make me a true believer. After a short guided tour, we had free reign of the floors, with about 12 people touring each floor. The first floor that we were on was where the cafeteria was originally located in the hospital. Steve and I sat down in the darkness, as there was no electricity in the building, waiting to see if we could see any shadow figures, hear any noises, or even get one of the ghosts to play with a ball that we had in there. After a while, my legs started hurting, so I stood up and moved to the children's section of the cafeteria. I tried to interact with any ghosts or spirits without any luck, and finally started to head back to where Steve was. That was when I felt something grab my hat off my head, and then toss it about five feet from where I was standing. I quickly looked around, and nothing was there. I freaked out. I started calling for Steve to come over to where I was. When he got there, I picked up my hat and just started backing up to where I have no idea. 
It was then at that point that something grabbed my hat from my head and tossed it again. Steve witnessed this happening as well. I completely freaked out. I was hoping to have something happen while we were there, but I guess I wasn't expecting it to be like that. Steve then tried to keep interacting with whatever had done it, but nothing else happened at that point. A little bit later, we were heading to another part of the hospital when I went to wipe the sweat off my head and realized my hat was no longer there. I do not remember feeling it be removed or anything like that, but it was gone. Again, I freaked out. We eventually moved on to another area, and when we came back, we started telling people about what had happened. One of the ladies asked if my hat was camouflaged. I told her it was. Then she told me that she had seen it in another part of the hospital. She took me to it, and there it was lying on the floor. I wasn't sure if I should even pick it back up, but I did and actually wore it the rest of the time there without further incident, but it was truly a freaky experience. Other things did happen, and we did see and hear some weird things, but the whole thing with the hat was enough to make me a believer for life. And then we have this from Josh. I've always been fascinated and open to the paranormal world, especially as a young kid growing up in an old lumber town 30 minutes east of St. Paul named Stillwater, Minnesota, right on the St. Croix River. Originally used by the French fur traders and founded in 1848 before Minnesota was recognized as a state, this place is the poster child for historic places with old Victorian homes that could tell a story or two, an old prison where the younger brothers spent some time and Native American battle sites just to name a few things. If you've seen the movies Beautiful Girls and Grumpier Old Men, that's my hometown. I'll try to keep this as brief as I can. I'm an adopted Korean male who has seen a ghost and a UFO, not at the same time, but wouldn't that be something, with my adopted mom. In 1985, when I was in fifth grade, we had just moved to Stillwater and lived north of town on a 10-acre hobby farm. One night near dusk, my mom was working in the garden in front of me while I was shooting baskets on the pavement. Our long gravel driveway was in front of my mom, and I noticed someone was coming down the driveway. I asked my mom who it was since I hadn't met anyone yet, and she thought it was a neighbor girl saying hi. As she approached us, I noticed that she was in a period dress wearing a long blue dress, and she had long hair. She was carrying books attached by a strap and wore brown boots. She looked about my age. The thing is, I could see right through her, and she was not leaving any footprints in the gravel, but hovering over it. She kept staring straight ahead and passed right by us as if we weren't even there, at a leisurely pace and walked past the barn into the backfield and disappeared. My mom and I looked at each other and I said, did you? And she said, did you? And with that, I took off into the house, locking my mom outside. Whoops. There were remnants of an old settlement in the backfield near the river and the house across the street was the old Arcola schoolhouse from the 1800s. She must have been walking home. From then on, I would turn every light on in the house and grab my dad's machete whenever I was home alone, especially when my dogs and cats would be staring at whatever was in the corner of the room that I couldn't see. Now for the UFO. Again, only seen with my mom for some reason. During one summer night of my senior year in high school, I was waiting for my girlfriend to get off of work and come over, so it was about 8 p.m. My mom was outside on the patio with the dog, sitting in a chair just looking at the stars when she told me to grab the binoculars and check out what was on the horizon on the Wisconsin side of the river. I looked and right above the horizon was what looked like a small hot air balloon rising up above the ground. I just thought it was a weather balloon because I could see it was being propelled by flames up into the balloon itself. As we both continued to watch, she's still outside, I'm now inside looking out the big bay windows, wide-eyed and kind of freaked out, when the balloon turns into a solid green-colored triangle. The green was the piercing color of the green go on a stoplight. It quickly rose into the clear darkening sky and then broke into three smaller green triangles. My jaw dropped. The three triangles then proceed to do these weird patterns in the sky. 
zipping from one end of the sky to the other in seconds. This went on for 20 minutes, and then without warning, it reformed into the solid green triangle, then back into the balloon shape, and then disappeared. Pants equal pooped. (laughs) Then my girlfriend Julie arrived to see us hysterically recanting the story. I find it weird that my adoptive mom and I have seen the holy grails of the paranormal, a full apparition and a UFO as if we are linked metaphysically or paranormally. Any thoughts? Finally, I was a camp director with the YMCA for a long time, and the last camp I worked at was west of Minneapolis on Lake Independence. It was a smaller camp, only 40 acres, but it had a deep history of being built on Native American land, so I was told. One of the cabins, Blackfoot, happened to be cabin 13, and I heard wild stories about that particular cabin from former and current staff. Remember, after seeing what I saw growing up, I totally believed it. During summer camp, I was told by a reputable counselor that a girl with long, stringy, dark hair covering her face would be seen standing at the foot of campers' beds at night. A couple of incidents while I was there piqued my memory, but there were so many more. In the fall and spring, camp was a conference center. There was a local private school that had held retreats there for over 40 years. In my last year there, I was hosting them and making sure all of the cabins were good to go. One of their security guards accompanied them to camp and was staying alone in Blackfoot. The next morning at breakfast, I saw him and he's white as a ghost and didn't look like he'd slept. I asked him if he was okay and he said, Josh, I need you to believe what I'm about to tell you. Last night when I was falling asleep, I saw two dark shadows across the room in front of me. I then heard in a low, slow whisper, get out, and heard scratches on the furnace next to me. I'm a 60-year-old man who's seen a lot of things, but I slept with the lights on that night. After breakfast, I went and looked at the furnace, and there were three long scratches in the newly replaced furnace metal plate. Again. In the cold and lonely winter months at camp, living there alone, I had my now 10-year-old yellow lab Indy there with me, thank God. It would freak me out when we would walk at night near Blackfoot Cabin. One night when I was the only one out there, we were on a walk near the summer office with Blackfoot Cabin directly to my right, about 30 feet away, when the hairs on Indy's back go straight up, and he's staring at the cabin now in an aggressive stance about to bark. I turn and look to see the lights of the cabin flicker on, off, on, and then off. I know that all of the doors of the buildings are locked because I have the keys, and there are no footprints in the snow on the path. I freak out and haul ass, nearly beating my own dog back to my house. We must have looked like Shaggy and Scooby-Doo. There are more stories to tell for another time. Well, thanks for sharing those, Josh. And finally, we have Janae sharing her personal experience with you guys herself. So my story, if you want to just jump right in. Yeah, that's fine with me. So growing up, both of my parents were teachers. And what that meant as a kid is when like the summer was starting to end, right? Like end of July, beginning of August, we would help mom and dad get their classrooms ready for the next year. So when I was starting fourth grade, my mom was going to teach fourth grade. And this was the first time that she'd ever taught fourth grade. Um, It was a newer school to her. She hadn't been at that school very long. So she took me with her and it was... I remember, I don't remember, like, it was a Wednesday, you know, August, whatever. I know it was the middle of the week. And I know we were the only ones in the building because mom had to, like, unlock the front doors and there were no other cars in the parking lot, that sort of thing. Sure. But because I was, like, nine or ten, she was like, you're going to bring your basketball and you're going to practice your free throws, basically, to keep me kind of busy while she worked. (laughs) Schools, 
like the janitors and the principals would have those special pronged keys to turn the lights on. You know what I'm talking about? Where like they would stick them in and right, so that kids couldn't mess with the lights in the hallways. Well, mom didn't have that key. So it was a dimly lit school. <laughs> and um, I remember we put our stuff in her classroom. She took me down to the gym, which of course was at the opposite end of the school. And she kind of went, it's a good thing there's skylights in here because I can't turn the lights on. So, you know, I could see well enough to, to do what I needed to do, but it wasn't like full bright. But she goes, I want you to shoot 100 free throws and then come see me when you're done. And I was like, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> I'll find myself. Yeah, like, okay. As soon as she left, I remember standing at center court and just dribbling the basketball. And you know that, well, you know, that kind of electrically charged feeling in the air yes. started to happen. And at this point, I had seen ghosts because we've, we've talked about this on like Zoom meetups and stuff, how, you know, I've seen dead people my whole life, near death experience as a small child, that whole thing. But it was one of those that like, I still didn't fully understand it because I was only nine or 10. And I remember <laughs> feeling like there was somebody standing in front of me. And for anyone who's played basketball, they know that like kind of crouch down position with the hands up, like trying to keep you from going to the basket or whatever. And in my head, I remember seeing this older gentleman with like gray hair, glasses, and he had on like old man gym clothes. So like, you know, the cotton shirt, the cotton shorts, the socks pulled all the way up with the sneakers. <laughs> and I'm like that, that just image kind of popped into my head. And I remember going, huh? Oh, okay. And I'm just trying to like, no, I got to get these free throws done. I got to get out of here. So I started dribbling. I did a couple layups to like get warmed up or whatever. And I was terrible at free throws when I played basketball. Awful. I don't think I, I don't think I made five. Like, I don't think I shot five before it got real weird. I shot one and missed spectacularly. Like, I don't even think it touched the net. Right. <laughs> and it, it, it hit the wall behind the basket and without touching the ground shot clear across to the other side of the gym yeah. like never touched the ground that doesn't normally happen no and as a 10 year old there's no i don't even think as a you know as an adult i could throw a ball that hard because it, it flew clear across the gym hit the opposite wall and dropped like a lead balloon like it hit the floor and it did not move wow. it didn't roll it didn't bounce nothing weird Right. So I remember going, ah, crap, because that's like suddenly I got that feeling of dread. Uh huh. And I kind of looked behind me, and the opposite wall of the gym was where the lunch line was. And at that school, the lunch line was like, uh, I guess my mom at one point told me it was an old boiler room because they had this big wooden window that had um, like a shutter in it that was in a track that moved up and down. Right. And so the window itself was probably three foot by four foot. Like it was a pretty good sized window and they had it shut during the school, you know, during the summer because there's nobody around. Well, as soon as I reached the ball, because I remember going, I'm going to grab it fast, sprinted to the other side, reached down to pick up the ball. And all of a sudden that window lifted up in its track and started banging back and forth oh like my gosh. slamming and then just went boom and slammed shut right in front of me i mean i i swear that thing lifted up at least 12 18 inches wow like on its own and i was like ah like screaming bloody murder and went running down the hallway for my mom and like i said that she was her classroom and the teacher's workroom were at the opposite end so i had a nice long run and i remember getting to the teacher's workroom and like slowing down and trying to like act all cool. And I walked in and I went, 
mom, is there, um, is there something you forgot to tell me? And I guess the, uh, the look on my face gave me away because the first thing out of her mouth was, oh, my school's haunted. <laughs> You're like, gee, thanks for telling me now. Right? And I, I kind of went, I'm going to need some more information. <laughs> like, go on. Well, it turns out there was a janitor, an older gentleman who used to work at that school that after work, he liked to go to another school in the district to play basketball. Wow. So what's really interesting about this story is you didn't actually see him physically, but you saw him in your mind. Right. That is really weird. Yeah. Well, and it took me, well, I'm going to be 33 on Friday and it's taken me up until about age 29, 30 to be comfortable enough with the idea that I'm what's called a clairvoyant medium where I can see them in my head. So I see them like a movie playing out almost. But at the time, I had no idea what any of this was. Mm -hmm. I just knew that I saw like a gentleman's image popped into my head. And then within 10 minutes, (laughs) oh, yeah, there's a a dead guy that hangs out around the school that likes to play basketball. (laughs) And you send your daughter to go play basketball. Now, he, he didn't die at the school, right? No, he just worked there for many years. So he just had an attachment to it that way. I guess um, because the principal of the school and the librarian had both been there for many, many years as well. And they've got they had stories that I found out later about hearing noises, things on the roof where nobody should have keys, like things like that, where they were pretty sure it was him just because they they knew him so well kind of a thing. The way this gym was set up. Was it like you had two basketball hoops, you know, lengthwise on each end? So when that went across the entire gym, we're talking a really long distance. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, uh, okay, I'm trying to think. So the the hoop that I was shooting at was obviously in front of me and the the hoop with the, uh, the window was like, yeah, the opposite end of the court. And it was funny because, you know, I had the run of the gym and I remember standing at center court kind of going, which side do this one has more light? I'm coming down here. Like <laughs> smart kid. Yeah. Like I'll just be, I'll be over here. But you know, and then when the ball shot to the other side, it was that oh, crap. Like now I got to go get it. I don't want to go get it. Yeah. And like that immediate, you know, feeling of dread. But I asked my mom, I was like, he wasn't like, he wasn't a mean guy. And she's like, no, everybody liked him. And I was like, but I guess just because I was a kid, you know, got kind of freaked out. Like I don't looking back on it. I don't know if he was just like a prankster and trying to like, you know, mess with me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause he doesn't sound like the kind of guy that would want to scare kids because he worked around them. Sure. But it was just, I mean, whatever was going on, he had enough energy to b- pull the ball all the way across and open that shuttered window on his own. So let me ask you this. At what age did you start having this clairvoyance where you were seeing spirits in your mind? Right around probably 10, 12. Well, this instance is one of the earliest instances I can think of where I saw them in my head. Up until then, I was seeing them pretty regularly, like I'm like I can see you now. Mm-hmm. But as I got older, it was I could always talk to my parents about it. Um, they never told me I was crazy. They never, you know, said I was using my imagination too much or anything like that. But I really didn't talk about it with other people. So I feel like in some ways I tried to shut it off. 
which is when things kind of changed and I started seeing them in my mind. Interesting. And so how often does this happen to you now? More often than I think I would care to admit. (laughs) Um, I did take, I am certified to be a medium. So I could do professional readings if I wanted to and that sort of thing. So I've learned to control it more, but they're kind of, they're like moths to a flame. So when there's somebody that is sensitive or somebody that they know can communicate with them, they're like, I'm going over here. I'm going to see this person. So it's for a while when, when we first bought this house, my husband kept asking me like, okay, now who's here? Okay, now who's here? Because we'd hear like, you know, weird noises and stuff. And I finally had to be like, all right, everybody out. Like, we're done. (laughs) You need to go. We need to sleep. Go away. Well, that's good. You haven't freaked them out with your abilities then. No, that was one of the like, okay, here's a test to see how much you love me. (laughs) (laughs) By the way. (laughs) Well, since this is for the Halloween special, I have to ask you, do you have a favorite Halloween candy? Okay, so I don't, my husband and I were talking about this. I actually prefer the like super nondescript, like generic brand eyeball candies that come in like the foil wrappers that are usually like chocolate and rice or like chocolate and peanut butter. I don't know who makes them. I know I can't remember, but I saw them the other day at the grocery store and I was like, oh, they're back. <laughs> like, yes. I'm almost thinking it's Palmer's, but I'm not for sure because I know they make a lot of nondescript kind of chocolate type stuff like coins and things like that. It could. Yeah, it very well could be because, you know, everybody buys like the Hershey's or the Kit Kats where I'm like, give me the ones that are just the random eyeballs. I love <laughs> the eyeballs. I love it. She likes random eyeballs. Perfect. I I do. (laughs) Well, Janae, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. That was really cool. Yes, thank you. Have a good night. All right, you too. Bye. Those were some really creepy experiences that people have had. They were so awesome. Want to thank all of you guys for contributing your personal experiences for this Halloween special. Kelly, we want to go ahead and wish everybody a very happy and safe Halloween. Most definitely. Happy Halloween, you guys. Yes. So stay safe and try to have fun no matter what you do. And hopefully we'll see a bunch of you at our Zoom virtual party this evening. Yes, please join us. Happy Halloween. Boom. It's Halloween. 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 Witches flying high with bats up in the sky. They're crazy about the funk and the moonlight. A graveyard boogie, a little monster jam. It's time for all the zombies in the shadows. It's Halloween. 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 It's Halloween.